We are continuing our study of, of Luke's uh, account of, of Acts, of the, the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ to build his church through the power of his Holy Spirit. And, and uh, I'm, I'm a little sad that we're almost finished, that we're almost finished Acts. We're just, a, just a few more weeks, Lord willing. I'm, I'm a little sad we're almost finished, um, but I'm also excited to get into Romans, Lord willing, uh, on the last week of October. But, but here, as we, we look at this passage, really continuing what, what it began last week from, uh, from Acts 25-23 to the end of, of Luke 26. Last week, we only got as far as, as, cha- as verse 11 of chapter 26, and we're going to finish chapter 26 today, Lord willing. Um, but this is really, we reached the climax, really, of the book of Acts. And so we just... Want, want us all to just to, to think with with reverence and to with expectation of, of what the Lord is going to do through the proclamation of His Word today. But again, to keep it all in its uh, in its context, I'm going to go back. It's a lengthy passage. If you feel you're not able to uh, to stay standing for the, the whole time, feel free to sit down or or walk around or something in the back. But but uh, act, but pay attention to uh, to Acts chapter 25 verse 23 um, to the end of of 26 verse 32. Acts 25:23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable that in sending a prisoner, not to indicate the charges against him. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life for my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in, Jer- in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which all the, our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appointed you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those which, in which I will appear to you, delivering, from, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, for I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? For I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your word because your word testifies of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. And Lord God, you have decreed that when your word is spoken, when it's preached, that you will accomplish that which, for which your word is sent. And so, Lord, just as the Apostle Paul proclaimed your word in confidence that you would work in hearts and that, or you would refrain from working in hearts all for your glory. Lord, I have that same confidence. I don't pretend to be a preacher, anything of the, the magnitude or the, the impressiveness of Paul. Paul might preach the gospel better, but he can't preach a better gospel. And so, Lord, I pray with confidence that you will work this morning through the proclamation of your word in the hearts of your people, Lord, to draw those who already trust in you to, to greater assurance and trust in Christ, to draw your elect who do not yet know you to faith in Christ, 
And at the same time, also, we trust that your word will even at times work to harden unbelievers. And Lord, while we don't, according to our thinking, want that to happen, Lord, we submit ourselves to your sovereignty and to your wisdom in this. We pray that you would do all of this for your glory and for the building of your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As I was saying to the kids this morning, we hear a lot about privilege in our culture. We hear about racial privilege and class privilege and gender privilege and so on. And so-called social justice activists want to de-privilege those who they deem to be responsible for perceived iniquities. But the attempt to create equity through inequity is ludicrous. But even still, we must acknowledge that privilege exists. This morning we're learning about a man who lived under great privilege. Agrippa II was born in privilege. And so was the woman who was presented as his queen. But as we've heard earlier, his queen was actually his sister, Bernice. They were both of the Herodian line, the line of client kings that was placed on the throne of Israel by Rome to rule for Rome. Agrippa had the privilege of power. Even from a young age, he was raised in the court of Caesar Claudius, the most powerful man in the world at that time. He had the privilege of great wealth, as the great pomp of his arrival in this trial room attested. And this is contrasted with the apparent lack of privilege in the Apostle Paul as he stood here before Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa and those around him enjoyed earthly privilege. But the greatest privilege that any of them experienced was the privilege that they experienced on this day when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from the lips of the Apostle Paul. Paul looked weak and unprivileged, but this was a display of great power and privilege for Paul. And it was not primarily the privilege of speaking to the king. It was the privilege of speaking for the king of kings, as the Lord had promised he would do. We're continuing the series of trials that Paul underwent in Jerusalem and then in Caesarea. He knew when he went to Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen to him. The Holy Spirit had testified to him that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him wherever he went. But as he declared in Acts 20, 24, but I do not, come out, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. The prophet Agabus had told Paul that he would be bound and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. And Paul's reply was very similar to what he said in Acts 20, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now just think about what Paul's saying here. We've talked about this several times, but, but I think, wow, I might be able to say those words, 
But in my own strength, I could never mean those words. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to stand up for Jesus at any point, even here among friends, let alone before those who had, from a a human perspective, the authority to kill me. Within days of Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, the prophecy was fulfilled. When Paul visited the temple precincts, purified in order to bring an offering to the temple to, to show the Jewish believers that he was not opposed to the law of Moses, the Jews charged him with desecrating the temple with false allegations that he had brought a Gentile into the court of the Jews. And they, they seized him and dragged him out of the, the temple courts and slammed the gate of the temple behind him and proceeded to try to kill him. But in God's providence, the, the, the Romans at the adjacent for, um, Antonia Fortress charged out of the temple because they, they saw that a riot was about to take place and they didn't know what was going on, but 200 soldiers charged down the steps and inadvertently rescued Paul from the hands of the Jews before they had a chance to finish what they wanted to do. And then in chapter 22, Paul, from the steps of the Antonia Fortress, told the crowd of of angry Jews his testimony, and he preached to them with a Roman bodyguard. And then the Roman tribune, Lysias, in an attempt to determine what what Paul had had done after wanting to to flog him, after wanting to whip him to try to get an an answer out of him, Paul testified to his Roman citizenship, and flogging a Roman citizen was illegal, and so Lysias was afraid of of harming Paul. But he tried to figure out what what Paul had done and, and why the Jews were so angry with him. So he said, I will send Paul to a trial before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish ruling council, in order to try to find out what on earth is going on here. This takes place in chapter 23. And then Paul declared before the Sanhedrin that he is on trial for the hope of the resurrection. And immediately a dissension arose, erupted between the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. And so the, the, the Romans came in and again dragged Paul out of there before they had a the chance to rip Paul apart. But that night, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul and said, take courage, for as you have testified of the, testified of the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And the very next day, the Jews made a plot to kill Paul. Their their plan was to to, to pretend that they wanted to hear more from Paul. And then while the Roman soldiers were bringing Paul to the, the hearing, their plan was to ambush Paul and to kill him. But in God's providence, Paul's nephew found out about it. And word got back to Lysias through Paul's nephew. And then so Lysias wisely decided to send Paul away from Jerusalem to, to where all the turmoil was taking place, to Caesarea, to the, to really to the Roman headquarters. And he sent Paul now, not with just 200 soldiers, but with 470 soldiers. He sent Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. What a wonder of God's providence. 
But then in chapter 4, we saw how Paul faced trial before the Roman governor, Felix. And Paul testified that he was innocent of the charges of the Jews, but he said, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything that was laid down in the law by in the prophets, in the law of the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and hear this, that there'd be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Paul again is bringing the issue of the resurrection to the front because this is the core issue. Felix put off rendering a decision about Paul and left him in prison for two whole years, desiring to, to keep the peace with the Jews and to do them a favor. But during that time, he repeatedly went to Paul in order to talk with him. And, and all, I, think, I can't, I would love to have heard those conversations, but if Felix did not repent, we have no sense that he did, that all of those conversations and that trial, the proclamation of Paul, we use the judgment of Felix. Then we read in, in chapter 25 how, or rather in the later, latter part of 24, how, how Herod Agrippa and Bernice arrived to welcome Festus. And Festus then outlined the case against Paul, explaining that Paul had done nothing deserving of death, and that the case of them, or the case against Paul, involved the Jewish religion. It wasn't a Roman issue. But he understood that the central issue, again, resurrection, but specifically now being Jesus, who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. And then Festus told Agrippa that Paul had appealed to Caesar because Agrippa was planning to send Paul back to Jerusalem and Paul knew that that would mean certain death. So again, he appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen and appealed to Caesar because in, in Roman law, a, a, right, the, the, a Roman citizen had the right to make appeal to Caesar and said, so Agrippa said, you've appealed to, so rather Festus said, you've appealed to Caesar and so to Caesar you will go. But Agrippa said that he wanted to hear Paul for himself. And then that takes us to the end of 25-22, where we, st where we were last week. As I said at the outset, in Acts 25-23 to 26-32, we see the climax, not only of Paul's trials, but really the climax of the, the gospel speeches in Acts. Luke here, in summarizing Paul's defense, masterfully, masterfully provides for us through the Holy Spirit the most developed proclamation of the witness for Christ in Acts. Last week, we looked at Festus' case against Paul in verses 23 to 27, where, where Festus reiterated the charges against Paul and his preliminary verdict that Paul had done nothing deserving of death and the fact that Paul had appealed to Caesar. But this fact here that, that Paul had done nothing wrong is a repeated theme also throughout these trials. And it's, it's really the, this, these repeated trials and this, this repeated proclamation of, of not guilty is meant to remind us of something. It's meant to remind us of the trials that the Lord Jesus Christ himself experienced as, as Jesus was interrogated by the Sanhedrin and then by Pilate and then by Herod. That was Herod Antipas and then back again to Pilate. There, there's a, a very clear connection that Luke is trying to draw here and, and very, very skillfully drawing 
between Luke and Acts, because remember, he wrote both, and Acts is really volume two of the gospel account. So again, Paul has done nothing deserving of death, but that he had appealed to Caesar. He's willing to die, but not needlessly. And Festus recognized that he didn't have any charges to bring against Paul. It is a report to Caesar, so he asked for Agrippa's help. And then in chapter 6, 1 to 23, Paul makes his defense. Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 11, where Paul lists his credentials as a zealous Jew. Again, testifying that he's on trial because of his hope in God's promise to the patriarchs. Three times he refers to his hope, to this hope, in a span of two verses. And he's once again referring to his hope in the resurrection. But this hope in this resu- his hope in the resurrection was because of his belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in misguided zeal, Paul had hated Jesus Christ and sought to destroy the church, even to foreign cities. And this takes us to verses 12 to 23, where Paul describes his conversion and his commission. But his conversion here really is is not what is highlighted. It is actually his his commission as an apostle, as one who is sent by Jesus Christ that is the focus of this passage. This is now the third time that we have heard Paul's testimony. And the first, remember, is recorded by Luke in Acts 9. And then Paul himself shared his testimony on the steps of the Antonia Fortress in chapter 22. Paul here says again that he journeyed to Damascus for the purpose of persecuting the church. And notice that he says that he did so with the commission of the chief priests. He had the commission of the chief priests. That commission was about to be overruled by the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul testifies, again, he's addressing Agrippa directly. Agrippa is his focus. Remember that there's others sitting around, but but Paul is focusing on Agrippa. Paul testifies that he and his companions saw a light brighter than the noonday sun. I've never been, I've never seen this for myself, but but the, the sky beam on top of the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas emits an impressive 42.3 billion candelas. That's that's the equivalent of 42.3 billion candles using curved mirrors and and 39 xenon bulbs. It it is the the brightest known light, man-made light on earth. But the sun, however, produces three octillion candles. That's three with 27 zeros. The the equivalent of of three octillion candles. And on the desert, the noonday sun is at its brightest. And the light, capital L light, that Paul and his companions saw made the noonday sun pale in comparison. Throughout the scriptures, theophanies are are often associated with a bright light. Appearances of God are are in conjunction quite often with with a bright light. 
And then as now, these, this is the light of the, the, of the Son of God. There are Christophanies and Theophanies, specifically a, a present, representation of Jesus Christ on earth. The light that Paul saw was the light of the glorified Son of God. Probably the brightest light that has ever been seen on planet Earth, ever. Now Paul, when he was still Saul, had a completely wrong understanding of who Jesus is. He had once regarded Christ according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians 5.16, but, but now as he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, but now as God said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have not seen the light of Christ in the same way that, that Paul saw on the desert headed towards Damascus. But we have seen something even greater. We have seen the light of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. We have seen the light of the glorified Christ in the word of God. Now, this is as an, as, this is an aside, but it's an important side. If, uh, just come with me for a moment to 2 Peter. And it, again, don't, this is as an aside, but, but if you don't believe me that that what Paul, what, what we saw and see in the, in the word of God is even greater than what Paul saw on the desert. Listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter here is speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration where he and James and John went up the mountain and saw the glorified Christ. It says, verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. You know, if I was going to think about, about the, the top 10 events in Scripture that I would have wanted to witness for myself, this is one of them. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ is the veil removed and his glory on full display. I don't know if it's, it's exactly on par with, but, but at least close to what we are going to see on that day. On the day of his return. They actually heard the voice of God thundering from heaven. This is my beloved son which, with whom I am well pleased. But now listen to Paul as he continues. And we have something more sure, more sure. The prophetic word, which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in, our, in your hearts. Knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Just as Peter was saying that the word of God is more glorious, the word of God that you hold in your hands is more glorious even than seeing the glorified Christ and hearing God speak on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
What you have in your hands is greater. What you have in your hands is greater even than what Paul saw on the Damascus Road. Talk about privilege. Paul and his companions fell to the ground and Paul heard a voice speaking to him in a Hebrew dialect, probably Aramaic. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Notice again, we talked about this before, the, the repetition of Saul's name. Like the commission of, of Old Testament prophets like Moses and Samuel. Repetition for emphasis. But what does it mean here where, where the Lord says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads? It's sometimes translated, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. This was a Greek proverb, but, but one that it would have been familiar to those in Israel, which was predominantly an agricultural society. A goad was a, a sharp stick or a, a plank with several, several sharp uh, pointed pieces of stick attached to it, and so that when the the ox driver would drive the, the, either the cart or the, or the plow and the ox kicked back against, against the ox cart or the plow, he would, he would, his feet would come up against the goads and he would, would hurt his feet. And so this idea here of, of Paul kicking against the, the goads, he's, he's kicking against Jesus Christ in his, in his effort to, to, serve God, he's opposing God. He's kicking against the goads. Paul was hurting himself and trying to kick back against Jesus Christ and his church. But Paul did not yet understand who this was who was standing there before him. So he asked, who are you, Lord? Now, in using the term here, Lord, he probably recognized that he was in the presence of someone supernatural or possibly even deity. But the light of the Lord had not yet dawned on his heart. Now, he would soon, in just a moment, he would call the, the Lord Jesus, his Lord, in total submission. But the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so in persecuting Jesus Christ, or rather in persecuting the church, he was persecuting the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Saul had made it his mission. He had been commissioned to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He thought it was zeal for God, but it was zeal against God. And he is now going to be commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to build the church that he once sought to destroy. As I said last week, I've said several times that arguably there is no human being on the planet who has done more to build the church of Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul. Friends, we see what happens when someone tries to kick against the church. The church is ultimately kicking against, those who are kicking against the church are ultimately kicking against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We recognize this, we see this as it happens through in persecuted countries around the world, as we, we see that, that 
that even through the persecution that, that our brothers and sisters experience, we find the church is actually strengthened, that the church grows and is, 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 runs deeper and is grounded more deeply on Christ because in their persecution, they're following the footsteps of Christ and they experience the, the, the confidence and the, the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. They're not, they're not relying on their, their own power or their own cultural cachet because they have none. They know that it's all from God. This happens in the world. The, the world kicks against the goads. But even happens in, in the visible church as, as many run to false doctrine and false Christs and contrary to the word of God. They're kicking against Christ. Those who teach what is contrary to God's word. We need to recognize that this sometimes happens not just in the visible church, but among the true church as well. Those who are truly Christians, sometimes in their misguided zeal, are kicking against the goads. When they try to serve their own agenda instead of Christ's agenda. May the Lord protect us from such misguided and blind zeal. But now in verses 16 to 18, the Lord Jesus gives Paul his new commission. But arise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those which, in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Notice that the Lord tells Paul to stand upon his feet. This echoes the commission of, of two more Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel, who are told by the Lord to stand on their feet for their commission for their ministry. In a parallel way, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul to make him a servant and a witness. And this points back again to the commission that is given to the apostles in Acts 1.8, which is really the, the, the central and, and thematic verse that, that really governs the whole structure of Acts. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here we see that Paul is being added to their number. Paul is a capital A apostle, is a personal eyewitness to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And also points back to Luke's address of Theophilus back at the beginning of volume one in, of Luke Acts. In Luke 1, 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word ha have delivered them to us. This us here, we've talked about the us passages in Acts where Luke is saying, I was there, I was with Paul when he did these things. He's part of the us and Paul is there as the us in Luke 1, 2. Jesus here promised to deliver Paul from his people and from the Gentiles, even as Jesus sent him to his own people and to the Gentiles, including the Jewish king Agrippa and Queen Bernice and the other Jews and Romans who were sitting there in this room. From a human perspective, Paul seemed to be under their control as he stood there bound in chains. But the word of God is not 
bound. As Paul will say from his prison cell, once again bound in chains in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And that will mark the final time that the Apostle Paul will be delivered. But he will not be delivered from death. He'll be delivered through death into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. But until that time, as we see here in Acts and as is testified to in his, in his epistles, until that time, Paul is going to continue to be, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, a powerful witness in any and every circumstance and situation. And in this, the Apostle Paul is our example. Again, it's, it's, we're, not, we're not trying to follow Paul. We're trying to follow Paul as Paul follows Christ. We're seeing Paul as an example of faithfulness and reliance on the power of Christ. And then by God's grace, we are spurred on ourselves to deeds of, of love and, and righteousness, seeking to follow Paul again as he followed Christ. And the Lord Jesus said he was sending Paul, he was commissioning him to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they would be forgiven for their sins and receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Notice what Paul is doing here. In sharing his testimony with Agrippa and those others in the room, he's continuing to do evangelism. Paul is being intentional here. He's powerfully presenting the gospel from four different angles. Four times he's describing uh, the condition of those who are apart from Christ as compared to the condition of those who are in Christ. He's offering them hope in Christ. He will open their eyes. And we know ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who does that, but, but through Paul's testimony and through ours, God, God opens the eyes of those who are blind. Now, it's surprising here that Paul, when he shares his testimony the second time, that he, he doesn't mention his, his own former blindness, how he'd been struck blind by the light of Christ, but had had the scales removed from his eyes when he entered into Damascus at the ministry of Barnabas. It's surprising he doesn't mention his former blindness. That would, I think would have made a good illustration, but, but I'm not Paul. Paul's saying he's going to open their eyes, again, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, as a witness of the light of Christ, will help others to be set free from their own darkness, from their own blindness. And in Christ, those who are under the power of Satan will be set free by the power of God to God. They who are slaves of Satan will become slaves of God. By faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the guilty are forgiven their sins and made right with God as they are declared righteous in God. Now, I believe the Nasby and the King James are better here with this fourth point, that those who were, were alienated from God will receive not a place, but an inheritance 
among those who are sanctified, meaning that they are, are the word sanctified here doesn't mean growth in Christ likeness. It means sanctified in the sense of being set apart for God by faith in Jesus Christ. So the gospel in four different ways, and, and I'm sure this was not lost on Agrippa or Bernice or Festus or any of those present that Paul was, was, had turned the tables. He wasn't here on, on the back seat. He wasn't on his back foot. He was now proclaiming Christ. He was, again, using this opportunity to proclaim Christ in any and every way that he could by the power of God. And Paul testifies that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He's continuing to be obedient at that very moment. He bore witness to, to Jesus Christ, to those in Damascus, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and to all the Gentiles. Again, this is a reference to Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the message here that he proclaims at this point is parallel to that of, of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. That, those, that his hearers should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Now we've talked many times about what repentance is. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in action. Those who once hated Jesus Christ and loved sin now hate sin and love Jesus Christ. That is repentance, and it takes place through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. But when Paul here talks about, about doing works in keeping with repentance, he, now hear me very clearly here, he is not talking about works-based salvation. Luke and I yesterday were, were talking with, with a man in the park who said he trusted in, in Christ for his salvation. So far, so good. And works. He trusted in Christ and works. If he just stopped there, he'd be truly regenerate. But it was apparent immediately he was a Roman Catholic. And he was, was trusting in, in his own works to save him. We, we explained to him that, that all of our righteousness is his filthy rags. That, that, that our works do nothing. They only add to, to our need for salvation because everything that we do is stained with sin. We share with them Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We say, yes, we're saved by grace through faith that not of our own doing is the gift of God, not of works so that no one could boast. But verse 10 says, for we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. So we are acknowledged by, by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. But it's not the root of our salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation. There is a, an increasing move, and it deeply concerns me, even amongst circles where, where people would claim to be reformed, that they say we start out saved by grace, but we stay saved. By works. If you want to hear more about this, I'd be happy to talk to you about this afterwards. But that's a false gospel. We're saved by faith alone from beginning to end. But again, if you are truly saved, you will produce works in keeping with, with righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Your works reveal 
that you're truly trusting in Christ. You cannot come away from an encounter with Jesus Christ and not come away changed. There's a Paul Washer sermon where he, he talks about, about making an excuse being, being late for the church because he was, he was changing, it's a story, he was changing, he got a flat tire and, and he was changing the tire and, the, and he said when he was, was in the process of changing the tire, one of the, the nuts fell out into the road and, and he looked up at the last second to see a logging truck coming straight towards him. He said the logging truck barreled into him and he said, he said that's why I'm late. He said, you cannot have an encounter with a logging truck and not come away changed. Now, I like the illustration. I've used it before, but I actually would want to, want to turn it around. We were like those who had had an encounter with a logging truck. Our lives, all of us, were in a complete mess. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, like someone who has had an encounter with a logging truck. But what Jesus Christ did when he came into our lives, when we had an encounter with Christ, he put us back together. As good as we were when we were new. In fact, better than when we were new. Infinitely better than when we were new. Again, you cannot have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and not be changed. That's what Paul is saying here. Well, now Paul brings it back to his trial. Back to the reason that he's standing here in chains. He says, this is the reason. This is the reason why the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. He's saying, Jesus Christ is the reason why they hated me. The gospel is the reason why they hated me. The gospel is the reason that they tried to kill him. So Paul now brings it to a close. Yet again, testifying to the gospel, this is glorious. He now addresses everyone in the room, verses 22 and 23. He says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. Again, this is not following Paul by our own ability. This is following Paul in the power of the same Holy Spirit that empowered Paul. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great. All the people in this room, even, even the great king, Agrippa, and even the, the more lowly among them who are still movers and shakers in that culture, testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And this is very much parallel, again, to Luke's trial, or to Jesus' trial in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All that Paul is saying lines up with the Old Testament prophets and with Moses. He's saying that... that they believed that the Messiah would be the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. The Jews themselves believed that the Messiah would be the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures in line with Moses and the prophets. But they denied that Jesus is the Messiah. They denied that Jesus is the Christ. 
The fact that the Messiah must suffer was a foreign concept to them. They, they didn't believe. They believed that the Messiah, they hoped that the Messiah would come as a, as a conquering king. And then they were thinking of an earthly kingdom, that the, the Messiah would come and that he would, would get rid of the Romans. But all through the scriptures, we see that the Messiah must suffer. It runs like a, the suffering of the Messiah runs in, in shadows and types with, in, with increased specificity with with increased clarity as you as you move into the into the throughout the old testament and then obviously seen most clearly in the incarnation of Jesus Christ all the way back with the, the the sacrificing of an animal to provide skins to clothe Adam and Eve it's a a, a demonstration of the, the covenant of grace and the covenant that is made with Noah and the, the sacrifice that he makes after he comes off the ark. The covenant with Abraham. As the animals are slaughtered and God puts Abraham into a deep sleep, then, then the, the smoking firebrand and the pot go th- and the torch go through the, 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 the entrails of the animals in the middle together. Points to the suffering of Jesus Christ, who died as a covenant breaker. I can think of another example yesterday as, as Luke and I shared the gospel with a couple of Muslim men in the park. And they were saying that, we, Luke asked them, how, 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 do you, how can you be saved? And they said, well, we believe that, that Allah is, is going to forgive. And we asked him, on what basis, on what basis can Allah forgive? You see, if God is, is holy and righteous, He must punish sin. Otherwise, he ceases to be holy. He ceases to be righteous. He ceases to be God. There is no salvation apart from any other name than the name of Jesus Christ. The Messiah must suffer. And he also must rise from the dead. Again, this is clearly taught in the Old Testament, but, but it's more veiled. Perhaps the clearest examples would be Isaiah 53 and, and Psalm 22. They testify to the, the, to the, the death and, and to, to resurrection. And really, this is the core issue. As we've seen repeatedly, it's the resurrection, particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, this is the rub. This is the crux of the issue. A hope in the resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that he has come to bring light to the Gentiles. To our people and to the Gentiles. Again, this was also a stumbling block. Remember the, the whole thing that, that, that led to Paul being in trouble with the, with the Jews was that he brought, a, allegedly, which he didn't do, he allegedly brought a Gentile under the Temple Mount and and. The Jews hated the Gentiles. And this was, this was, we've talked about this before, Judea, and particularly Jerusalem, was, was almost at a boiling point. It would erupt in a, a rebellion in AD 66 that would lead to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. The, the Jew and Roman, Jew and Gentile relations were at an all-time low. But Paul came to, to proclaim light to both the Jews and to the Gentiles, to break down the wall of hostility between 
both and Almighty God. But now in verses 44 to 32, and I'll, I'll deal with this, with this more quickly. We see Festus's, Agrippa's, and Paul's verdicts. Festus's and Agrippa's and Paul's verdicts. We've heard, we've heard Paul's defense, and now we hear the verdict. Paul's defense was not his defense, it was the defense of the gospel. And we'll see how Agrippa and Festus will respond to the gospel. At the proclamation of the resurrection, Festus interjected. He said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, when Festus did this, he was actually out of order. This was not his courtroom. This was Agrippa's courtroom. He stepped out of line. He wasn't saying here that Paul was a raving lunatic, but th that Paul had been studying God's word too much. May we all be so guilty. And Festus believes that Paul's study has led him to adopt, adopt some bizarre ideas that are contrary to rational thinking. Remember that the Romans had no concept of a bodily resurrection. And so this was completely foreign to him. Now Paul replies respectfully. Now, I think he learned something from this. It's not, the, it's not a main point. It's definitely a, ter a tertiary point. But remember, he, he was addressing Agrippa. This was Agrippa's court, but he replies nonetheless respectfully to Festus. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. And now he turns to address the person he has been primarily addressing through the whole trial. He says, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He's coming back to the common ground. And this is actually a, a, wise, a, a wise tactic when, when you're talking with an unbeliever. You, you, you try to, to start from, from the common ground before exposing what the, the differences are between, your, between his or her worldview and, and your worldview. And, and you, you bring it to the biblical worldview. He's demonstrating that he's not the king's enemy. He's hiding the fact that Agrippa... The king, who was, remember, a Jew, was not unfamiliar with these things. He not only heard about and knew all about resurrection because he claimed to have the same hope as the Jews, the hope of the resurrection. But furthermore, he wasn't just familiar with those things from Scripture. And I don't mean just as in, as in only, not in the negative sense of Scripture, of course. But also he heard directly the reports about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says to him, this has not been done in a corner, that this here refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Saying, Agrippa, you know all about this. You know about it in the, from the word of God, and you know all about it because you've, you've heard how Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in fulfillment with the word of God. Paul here is putting the king in a corner. He's... he's Revealing to the king, he's, the king's already in a corner. Paul's just revealing it. He says, you need to make a decision about this. What are you going to do about this information that I'm laying before you? 
says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. I know you believe. Again, if, if Agrippa here, if, 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 if Agrippa acknowledged his belief in the prophets, then he would have to admit that Jesus fulfilled the, the prophets' promises. But if he denied faith in the prophets, then he would be rejected as an apostate himself. Paul's saying, get Agrippa, Agrippa. So I had to say that. But Agrippa replies, he says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now I had, in, in my thinking, I had actually seen this as a, as saying, you're so close, Paul. But I think in the context, as upon reflection, reading commentaries on this, I think that what he's saying is actually, he, he's not endorsing what Paul is saying, He's being critical. He's saying that Paul didn't do enough in a short sermon to, to make him a Christian. Now the term, remember, at, at that time of the culture, the term Christian was derogatory. It wasn't a, considered a, a, a positive thing to be called a Christian. It was an insult. He's saying that Paul didn't do enough. Now we know, of course, Paul can't do enough. No one can do enough. Only God can do enough to get somebody into the, into the kingdom of God. But what he's doing here, this is, this is a tactic. This is a, this is a diversion tactic to, to, to try and, and distract from the original point. This is his way out saying, look over there. And Paul replies, whether short or long, I would to God. He's ask God that not only you, but all so, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul, in his sincere desire, loves Agrippa. He loves those who he is speaking to and he earnestly wants them to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, we know how wicked Agrippa was. We know that, that, that Festus also is, is a God-hater. But Paul loved them. All, loved all the people in the room. He wanted to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul says, Yet the apostle was not thinking at that moment about his freedom. His heart was burdened by their chains, not his. Do you earnestly desire, earnestly desire that the unbelievers in your life will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Your friends and neighbors, your family members, co-workers, neighbors, do you hope and pray that they will come to Jesus Christ? Do you pray that the God will use you to be the instrument to introduce them to Jesus Christ? That they also might be set free from the chains of their sin? Third story from the park. We met another guy in the park who was coming out of the bathroom. He was wearing had a, had a blue clothes and a, and a blue uh, and a blue jays sweatpants on. I was going to commiserate with him about the blue jays caving again. But then he, we started to walk towards him and all of a sudden he looked up in the tree. 
He said, there's apes up there. I thought, oh, here we go. Within the span of a couple minutes, he said he was God. He said he was Jesus. He said he was Sammy Hagar. He took a gospel tract and gladly took a gospel tract from him. He said, oh, I'm a Christian. We tried to talk with him, but it was going nowhere. This man was in the bondage of his sin. And we, we, we watched him. He was trying to, try to give the gospel, the gospel tract that we gave him, tried to give it to another person. Then there was a family sit, sitting, sitting down at a table having breakfast. And, and so we approached him and said, look, he's not with us. He's, he's speaking for himself, but, but we would encourage you to read what's in that tract. Those around us are in bondage to their sin. They are in bondage to their delusion every bit as much as that man was in bondage to his delusion. People need to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can be set free from sin and death and set free from the rebellion against God to love and to serve God. The king arose, the governor Bernice and those who were sitting with him Court adjourned. We've heard enough. It does not appear that any of these men or women ever came to save, came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it was true in the majority of the people that Paul preached to. He saw moments of great revival. But even the apostle Paul couldn't bring these people over the line. Now, I don't know about you, but I take great confidence in that. That when the gospel is proclaimed, when the word of God is proclaimed, I know I'm powerless. But I know God is powerful. And I know that he will accomplish through the proclamation of his word that for which his word is sent. Maybe even Sammy Hagar in the park We'll think about what he heard and we'll come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Many of you probably don't know who Sammy Hagar is. But. And so their verdict? This man has done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Sounds nice. He's not a bad guy. I don't know what those Jews are thinking. He doesn't deserve to die. He shouldn't be in prison. But this also points to the trial of Jesus Christ. Just as the Roman governor and a Jewish king had reached the same verdict on Jesus, now a Roman governor and a Jewish king would make the verdict on Paul. Despite the verdict on Jesus Christ, they would deliver him to crucifixion. Despite the verdict on Paul, they would deliver him to Rome in chains. But as we know, this was the fulfillment of God's plan and God's purpose for the Apostle Paul. As Paul knew all along, he was headed for Rome. And their, their blindness was what God used to get him there. So Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, think about this. Think about what was happening here. Think about, uh, about what they had just heard and who they had heard it from. Think about the privilege. Zeroing in as it did the, in the introduction, zeroing in on Agrippa. Think about his privilege, not just in his life, but that the Apostle Paul was addressing him personally, directly. 
with one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached, perhaps in, in obviously less than, but, but maybe only less than the Sermon on the Mount, the sermons that Jesus preached. And he rejected it. And he walked away, politely, but he walked away. Now think about the people that you've shared the gospel with and think about the excuses that they've made. Some that, that I've heard, well, you know, that's fine for you. Yeah, I wanna, it's good for you. Not for me, but it's good for you. Maybe if, maybe people say, if, if, and I've heard this, if, but if God appeared to me, if Jesus Christ appeared to me, then I would believe. I said, no, you wouldn't. Any more than the Pharisees believed when Jesus appeared to them or, or the governor or the Herod. But we need to remind people that this is not just about God and me. This is about God and you. What are you going to do with this information they have received? Friends, what are you going to do with this information that you have received? Think about the privilege that you have heard. Again, there's no privilege to, to hear me. I'm nobody. But to hear the word of God. To hear the word of God proclaimed. This is the privilege that you have had yet again today. And thinking about privilege, you are among the most privileged people who have ever lived on planet Earth. And all this stuff about white privilege and class privilege, all that stuff, no, no, no. You are infinitely more privileged because of the Word of God. You have the Word of God. Again, you don't need to hear it from me. Open your Bible. Read the Bible. How many Bibles do you have in your house sitting on your shelf? The Bible can do nothing for you if it's sitting on the shelf. Like Augustine said in his autobiographical confessions at his conversions, he heard a voice saying, take up and read. And so immediately he went and grabbed a Bible and he just cracked it in the first, I don't, the first place he looked was, was where the, he said, the word of God says, I remember which passage it was. Found a Bible and opened it to, to where it says, sell what you have, give to the poor, you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. At that moment, Augustine was converted and coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Again, you have heard the word of God this morning. What are you going to do about it? Think about your privilege of hearing the word of God, of being able to, to as, as, as often as you want, to take up the Bible and read. Read the Bible. Again, this, this does nothing to save you. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you can't, if you're truly saved, you can't add your salvation through the word of God. If you're unsaved through the word of God, yes, that can save you through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't make God love you more because you read the Bible. 
but as those who, who, who know the gospel, know the love of Jesus Christ through the gospel, you want to read because, because it testifies to who God is and because you know him and you want to know him more because you love him and you want to love him more. And we also have the privilege, the same privilege that the Apostle Paul had. No, probably none of us are going to, to, to share the gospel with, with King Charles. Or Justin Trudeau. But you have the same privilege as the Apostle Paul in being able to proclaim the Word of God. This is not just for pastors. If you were here this morning as a Christian, you have the superlative privilege of proclaiming the Word of God, of being used by God to help build His kingdom in, in every bit, in, in the same way as the Apostle Paul did. Again, like reading the word, it doesn't, it doesn't make God love you anymore. But because you love God, you want others to love God. Because you love to proclaim his name. If reading the Bible regularly was illegal in this, was reading was illegal in this country, if it was illegal for you to read your Bible regularly, would you be declared not guilty? Or do you understand the privilege that you have to read the Word of God? What about if evangelism were illegal? Would you be declared not guilty of that as well? Or do you understand your privilege to proclaim the Word of God? Now, you and I have not done either to the extent that God requires. You and I have not done anything to the extent that God requires. God requires actual, actual and absolute perfection. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And again, we've never done that. I've never done that. Neither of you. Yet whatever the guilt, whatever the, the verdict upon you, in the court of men, if you're charged guilty in the court of men, whatever that verdict, the verdict on you in God's court, if you're a Christian, is not guilty because Christ bore your guilt on the cross. The verdict on you is not just not guilty, it's 100% righteous because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, credited to your account. Again, don't you want to read more about that in God's Word? Don't you want to tell others about that from God's Word? That's the motivation for faithfulness. Not to earn favor, but as one who has received favor. The gospel of Jesus Christ is its own motivation to read the Word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is its own motivation to share the gospel with others because, again, we, we love God and we want to grow in that love and we want others to grow in that love. One day, all this is going to end. And our apparent weakness and lack of privilege will be pulled back like a curtain opening and the brightness of the morning sun come flooding in as it is revealed before God and man 
who you truly are and the privilege you've received in Jesus Christ. But all who have rejected Jesus Christ, like King Agrippa, like Bernice, like Festus, will call on the rocks and the hills to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Josh Garrels in his song, Cynicism, says, We kick against the pricks, so convinced we know the way. Oh, the love we sacrifice to be kings for a day. It wasn't just Paul that was kicking against the bricks. It was Agrippa. It was all who reject Jesus Christ. They're all kicking against the pricks. Whether it's to be the king for a day or whatever it is, nothing is worth comparing to walking with Jesus Christ and receiving new life with him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we know our guilt We know that even the most righteous among us are guilty before your holy law. We know that none of us has anything to commend ourselves to you. Yet, Lord Jesus, you came into this world to die for our sins. Lord Jesus, you drank the wrath the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that from you we would receive an overflowing cup of obedience, of, of, of blessing, of righteousness that you've credited to our account. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your perfect and complete sacrifice. We praise you that, that you finished everything that we could never finish. Help us, I pray, to love you and to love others so much that we can't help but study your word. We can't help but proclaim your word to others because we want to glorify you and we want to see others glorify you as well. I pray this all in your precious name. Amen.